Welcome to Circuit Break from Macrofab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and software-defined vehicles, also known as SDVs. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Doman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 409. Circuit Break from Macrofab. So next week is going to be Christmas. I think when this episode comes out, it's going to be the next week's going to be Christmas, which we'll have the Star Wars episode. It's a uh, three hours long, wide variety of topics. We kind of change up the format a little bit. So hopefully you all like it, but um, have a happy holiday and uh, go listen to that podcast. It should be a lot of fun. So our first topic today is Marvel sees self-defined vehicle readiness near at hand. So what what this is the EE Times article that is talking about how the big companies like Ford and and GM and Chrysler probably you know Mercedes etc BMW are designing their cars in different ways and moving away from I guess the last I would say like thirty years of how cars are being constructed in terms of the electronics and moving towards more where everything's more integrated instead of having a lot of subsystems that talk to each other. And why I say by more integrated, whereas you have like a network backbone. And this article talks about like ethernet and that kind of stuff. But the one thing that's really interesting that stuck out to us was this software defined vehicle SDV. And I don't really like that term in this regard because what they're using it as is where the driver inputs don't necessarily translate one-to-one to to what the car does. Yeah, there's like a translation layer in between your input and the system. Yeah, so I don't really call that a software-defined vehicles. Like, there's a term for that. It's called fly-by-wire, which is in in airplanes. Whereas, uh, what was the the first, the famous stealth fighter-bomber that looks like a penguin that flies around? A penguin? <laughs> yeah, it's like a side profile, like a, a penguin. Oh, oh, what was that called? That with the two, um, gosh, with the two rear fins that are up at a at a strange angle, angle like a thirty degree angle. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, what was the name of that bomber? <laughs> I, I guarantee you, people are are yelling at us right now. Uh, the F one seventeen Nighthawk. Nighthawk. So that that plane is famous for being basically unflyable without a computer. Mm. So I think that might be one of the first planes, or at least one of the first military planes, it's almost all, it's all fly-by-wire. So like the the pilot's stick inputs go through a computer and then the plane figures out how to do whatever it is that the pilot wanted to do. And we've actually been doing this slowly in automotive space a bit. Mm -hmm. Because back in the day, your steering wheel was connected to a, a steering shaft that went to a, a gear and the gear turned the wheels, right? And it was your your brake pedal pushed an actuator that pushed a hydraulic fluid into your calipers that squeezed your brakes. Or it was a, 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 a piston that expanded your drums uh, and your drum brakes. And then on your throttle, your pedal was connected to a cable or a linkage that went to a carburetor 
that opened up butterfly valves that created a venturi effect that allowed fuel to go in it very like you are connected to the machine and are directly like and even if we want to go farther back you have cars that have the timing advance for your distributor or your, your ignition you can retard and advance it on your steering wheel because back then you didn't have you had like a fixed weight distributor and Sometimes you and you didn't have like a vacuum advance or anything like that. And so you'd have to manually adjust the advance of your timing. So that, like that's way back. That's like uh, 30s and, and early 40s. And by the mid 40s, they kind of figured out how like, oh, if we put a little diaphragm on it and tuned it on the vacuum of the engine, we can see how much load the engine has and we can adjust the timing that way. So they figured out some kind of automation, right? It's very rudimentary. But as we've gotten farther along, still like in the 2010s, 20, uh, yeah, 2010s, your steering wheel was still kind of connected to the steering rack. They've kind of gone away from the throttle part. Like it's now your throttle pushes a, a this is actually like, I think one of the first drive-by-wire is what they call it, systems. And actually the Toyota had a really big, problem with uh their rheostats or whatever the potentiometer basically that's in the pedal mm. where the code would go f- would freak out if it got errant uh readings and would the car would just accelerate um <laughs> that was famous we talked i think we talked about that yeah. on the podcast like seven years ago or something like that yeah I we do were talking about that, it yeah. with um in relation with tin whiskering oh geez yeah, that was probably a long time ago. There was a there was a NASA article or NASA like white paper about tin whiskering with these like pedal controllers. That's a long time. I want to see if I can find that 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 paper again because I had some really cool like microscope shots of like tin whiskering in action, where like they use like an electron microscope and see the tin build itself in real time. It's kind of cool stuff. Anyways. The throttle was like the first one they kind of did that with. And uh, so basically, like you push the throttle, it would just a, a voltage readout on your pedal. And then there'll be a little actuator on your throttle body now that opens and closes it, depending on what the computer wanted to do. And that actually has a lot of advantages nowadays because you can, like if someone just mashes the throttle, most of the time it's not, you, you don't really want to just open your throttle blades all the way because it will bog the engine. Oh, yeah. Because, like, all the vacuum basically just goes up. Your, your your vacuum in your manifold basically drops down that atmospheric pressure, and now you don't have any velocity in your intake air. And so you typically don't want to do that, and so they basically made a, a slower ramp because now they, if someone just mashes the throttle, they just do a slower ramp now. And also it's like, I think actually it was Toyota, again, had a patent or something like that or made a paper about keeping the acceleration of the car in check and so like you could basically you'd have like a commuter mode like you know you'd have like normal mode and then sport mode and Mm -hmm. those dials that cars have in buttons you can change different modes so you'd have like a normal mode in normal mode if you like try to hit the throttle really hard it wouldn't even do that it would just like it would still do a slow ramp in to save fuel economy Right. And then you could turn it into sport mode and then it would do what you, you know, it would accelerate faster and ignore fuel economy. So you could do a lot of stuff like that. Now, really, since I want to say like the mid 10s, 
they started doing more of that to the rest of the car and like steering. So now you can have a lot of steer by wire. Yeah. I don't think no one's done completely disconnected. Like there's still a lot, a lot of like, if you lose power, you know, not being able to steer the car is a bad thing, mm-hmm. but they've gone to a lot of like, where like your power steering is no longer hydraulic setup anymore. It's electric. So you either have an electric steering rack or you have an electric power assist that's on the column. That's actually cool stuff I'm talking about now is because um, the hot rod scene is actually starting to incorporate a lot of this technology into the hot rod scene. Really? Why is that? Because it makes packaging this stuff a lot easier. So for, let's say for power steering, okay? You have to have, so typical power steering, you need to have a powered hydraulic system on either your steering rack, if it's a steering rack style system, or a gearbox, like for like trucks and stuff have like a, that's a gearbox that's that moves linkages around. But the power that you need to have a hydraulic system, it's usually a power steering pump and then all the hoses for that. So you have to have this thing that's like grafted onto your engine to provide the hydraulic pressure, the, the pump, right? And well, the problem with that is if you try, if you have a big engine and you're trying to shove it into a small car, which is what hot, hot rodding is all about, a lot of times you don't have power steering because you can't fit a physical power steering pump in there. And a lot of times there's those gearboxes and the power steering racks and stuff take up a lot of space too. More space than what you might have in your smaller car you're trying to shove this into. Well, these new units, let's say the, the style that like basically just boosts the your your steering wheel basically they actually kind of fit some fit on the engine side of the firewall but some actually fit on the dash side like on the inside and so you can fit them up under your dash and they attach to the shaft itself so they look at your steering input and have and basically there's a motor with a gear that can assist your turning of the wheel so it's kind of weird because we're like normal power steering, you turn it and then it like has a basically a, it's a torque multiplier in the gearbox. I guess it's the same thing as a torque multiplier for electric, mm-hmm. but you can package it underneath your dash and then all you need is to apply electrical power and you already ha- you need an alternator minimal to run your engine. So you, you already have an alternator. So you just pull power off of that. So now you don't need this whole hydraulic system that always leaks like I've never had a power. Show me a power steering system that's that doesn't leak. I don't think it exists. They always slowly leak. So yeah, and so and on on the brake side, they haven't fully gone. At least I don't think yet fully gone physical disconnection yet. But I think they're going to, just because the reliability of the stuff is like through the roof now. Where you know it started with like a a manual brakes, and then you went to diaphragm, which was vacuum on your engine would pull against the diaphragm and assist you in braking, basically still pushing the hydraulic system, where now you have electric assist, which basically replaces the the air diaphragm, which also, again, now you can package it under the dash. And if you looked at modern cars, there's a lot of dash between you and like the engine firewall now. That, mm-hmm. That's a symptom of them angling the windscreens lower and longer. So you get more aerodynamic for the roof line. They tilted out the windshield. So now you have these huge dashes that are in front of you. Like if you look at like my Jeep Wagoneer, the dash is like nine inches deep. <laughs> that, that's like it. 
Like you sit in it and you are so far away from the dash. If you reach out, you have to lean forward to get to the radio. <laughs> yep. Whereas in a modern car, you can be leaned back and you can do everything because the dash is like right up on you now, which is way better for like, I'm not saying the old way is better in that regard. Aerodynamics and ergonomics. Yeah. Ergonomics is way better in modern cars. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, your car is is a brick with wheels. I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> so yeah, this whole like, I don't. I think software-defined vehicles is the wrong term for it. It's it's drive-by-wire, which has existed in cars before, but they're pushing more towards it. I think the argument is that it's it's being pushed on more and more subsystems systems within yes. the car. Yeah, because it's been like a logical progression of of which systems get chosen to be that. But this article is arguing you can go a lot further with it. I've been doing some research and and it's interesting because, you know, even aircraft nowadays are still not fly by wire or they're somewhat parallel fly by wire. Like the 747 in a lot of cases still is direct linkage from the yoke of the pilot to the to the control surfaces. Yeah, but the thing is, Look up how old the 747 is. Right. And that's your answer. Well, the, and, and I say parallel on that because they do have autopilot, but the autopilot basically just moves the yoke, right? Yeah. And obviously, it's not just like airplane cable controlling surfaces on that. There's hydraulics and, and a lot of other systems that, that come into play there. But yeah, okay, so in terms of software-defined vehicles, the question is, is that a net positive or is that just more crap to break? In a car, because as cars get more and more complex, I, I, can, I get more and more grumpy about it. It can simplify a lot of things. That's what I was talking about with the hot rod situation. It does simplify a lot of things. So you don't need as much other systems to support those systems. Again, the only downside I, I really see is if you lose power. I would love to see like, because I think most of this stuff is mo- also mostly geared to electric cars or uh, electric first power cars, I should say. And so I'd love to see like, in terms of like, I know this is true for Teslas where most Teslas, they have to replace their brakes, not because they get worn out, but because they're, they're like literally corroded together because they don't use their brakes that often because they can engine brake so much more effectively with their electric motor to re to regen. They literally don't really use their brakes that much. And so when you go get your Tesla service or like a lot of times they have to replace the calipers because the calipers haven't moved in like ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you look at something like that, it's like, well, does a Tesla really even or these like, could you even design an electric vehicle that doesn't even have brakes in the typical sense? That's literally just the motor. Right. Hmm. Yeah, but th- um, that's that's just, uh, I guess you could say, an added benefit of electric motors. Yeah, but then then you have this whole system of tubes and hydraulics and all this, like, linkage and stuff that you can just be like, nope, we're not going to use that anymore because our motor can effectively break the car. Well, I, I, but that's not exactly true because uh, like an electric motor can't fully break a car. You still need some kind of mechanical breakage. No, you can totally you can totally break the car with I don't think motor. you can rely a hundred percent on an electric motor to break a car. Why not? Uh because I think as you as you actually do decelerate the the deceleration or the, the braking action on the on the motor 
decreases uh, to well, the point where, reverse. like, I don't think you can actually fully stop a car that way. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, the counterpoint would be you would just flip the polarity of the motor. Well, and but drive the motor point, backwards. No, but 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 no, okay, I'm sorry. I mean, that's but, but ten, maybe not the right way to do it. But that's like that's how you would how you, you would just stop lock it up be, or turn the wheels backwards. I'll put it this way: it's how you would stop. Like if you would just need the car to sit there, is it would just monitor the wheels and then slowly. Basically, it's like that self balancing robot problem. Is if it's moving forward, you apply a little bit of reverse bias on the motor, and if it's going backwards, you apply a little forward bias on the motor. And no, then no, absolutely, I, still. So, sorry, I was I was applying what you were saying earlier, as in the, it has to function with no power. And oh yes, bra- yes, yes, yes. Braking yes, yes. is a one hundred percent critical to safety yes, thing. Yes, yes. Okay, such I that agree. You there. have to have some way to stop it with no power. Yeah. I, so I, absolutely no. no. With an electric motor being able to flip it in reverse, basically, yeah, you could stop it that way. Yeah. I, I was assuming with no power. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I, that's that's the only thing I I'm getting at with this is I don't know how safe these systems are and that kind of stuff. It could be that you like the motor has a fail safe. It doesn't have any power. It just like puts both leads together across some diodes and just like slams them, tries to slam the motor as hard stop as it can. Just lock it up. (laughs) But yeah, there's a lot of things to think about with that. And it's like, if you're, and the thing is, especially on like these new electric vehicles with these hydraulics, they're failing because they're not being used. (laughs) It's the problem. (laughs) And so it's like, well, is it even worth putting them on if they're being really used? And there's an argument for and against it, um, for sure. And I don't know the the math on the statistics on if you got rid of it, would the accident rate basically be the same? Or because there's there's always gonna be mechanical failures, like brakes fail all the time, mm-hmm. especially back in like we used to have single pot master cylinder with one line that went out of it, and it just went to a T junction and went to all your brakes. And the moment you busted a seal at a drum, boom, you had no brakes. Now we've come a long way from that. So even even a hydraulic system is not infallible to stopping your vehicle. Funny enough, I know a couple of people who've had their just normal brake system fail, like because a hose burst or something. Mm-hmm. Just entirely gone. Yeah. So yeah, I would love to see. I, I wish there was some statistics. I bet you there is. I just have to go look for it. To see that, but I look forward to it as I probably would never own a car that has this stuff, but I definitely will buy parts off of them <laughs> and from eBay yeah. to put into my vehicles I am building because, like the whole the whole like electric powered steering and stuff, I wish I could make that work on my uh, my checker project, my cab. Why can't it? It doesn't fit. I actually already tried. <laughs> really. Yeah, it doesn't fit up underneath the dash. The dash is too, it's a weird shape on the checker. The checker has like really like narrow, like height-wise dash. Mm. Um, so it just doesn't, like it just hangs down. And by the way, it would work. It just would look ugly. Got <laughs> so it. I'm not doing it. So so it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because it doesn't hi- it doesn't go underneath because the dash. Because not being ugly is a criteria for you. Yeah, that is a criteria for this. And and I'm also doing like hydraulic brakes on that car. So I already will have hydraulic power steering on it. So I'm like, I, I'll just put power steering in it like the normal way. But yeah, all all that stuff is, it's pretty cool stuff. I'm kind of looking forward to it. We'll see. I just remember, so my, uh, our friend, Joe Stevens. So Joe was a housemate for me in college and uh, his 
at the time, girlfriend, now they're married, like six years, something like that now, maybe even longer. Anyways, she had a Saturn, and Saturn was a GM product for, I wonder, I wonder if there's someone been born that when Saturn, Saturn went defunct how long ago now, like 10 years ago, 12 years ago? When did Saturn go out? I have no idea. I wonder if there's someone listening to a podcast that's never seen a Saturn car. <laughs> Maybe. They didn't really go out of business. 2010, 13 years. I don't think there's any 13-year-old people listening to our podcast. Maybe. You never know. Maybe. Anyway, Saturn was GM's like budget, but also experimental brand. Kind of weird, right? Do you think like an mm-hmm. experimental brand would be like expensive? But they were like the brand of like, how can we make a car even cheaper? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so uh, her car had a had an electric power steering. And that thing ate shit the bed all the time. Like really? all the time. But I guess the experiment failed, right? Well, th- this was also back. I think that was like a 2001 or something like that. Saturn. Some like blue sedan. I don't remember what it was. But back then, electric power scene was like unheard of. And even in an economy car like that. So hmm. it could have been a success in terms of it was really, really cheap. And it worked well enough. But who knows? It's kind of a shame that that GM got rid of uh, Saturn. Because it was a cool kind of weird system they had. Which was like, we're going to build budget cars. But also, like, try to figure out how to make, like, the bleeding edge tech work in it. Kind of cool stuff. Ended up basically then breaking a lot, though, because <laughs> the tech's not ready yet. <laughs> sure. Or it's not it's not ready for that size of a market. That, correct. Because really, like, electric power steering really didn't take off until, like I said, like, the mid-aughts. A whole, like, you know... 15 years later after that poor sedan. (laughs) I do think that that's the way that automobiles are going though. Like to have everything be a subsystem that plugs in and does its function and communicates digitally to things. To be honest, it seems the easiest for the manufacturers to deal with if they can handle it that way, where everything is a self-contained unit that they can manufacture closer to home and install in your car when something goes wrong makes life easier for for them. So I, I foresee it only going more that direction. Yeah. This article also covers Ethernet in cars. And because right now we do have a low voltage differential signal system in cars called CAN bus. Wasn't CAN bus developed for automotive purposes? Pretty much, yeah. And Ethernet is also a low voltage differential signal style system. I think Ethernet has like more specifications on like wire and the physical layer where you have to have like mm-hmm. uh, coupling um, magnets and stuff in the connectors. And yeah, not in the connectors, but in the uh, jacks. Well, yeah, or they have land transformers on the board. Or yeah, or land, yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think Ethernet specifies all that. What CAN bus? I don't really think actually specifies any of that stuff. It's like. This is the signal protocol. And then like only half the manufacturers actually adhere to it. And the uh, other half have something like it. Like GM products have like, they have CAN bus and then they have like a GM low speed CAN bus. And I think Mm. there's a high speed CAN bus that they have now too. 
so it's all over the map on Canvas. So what they're proposing is kind of like a more standardized way, and they, they just use Ethernets, which kind of makes sense. From a, I when I was thinking about this before, I thought it was stupid. Like I was looking at the article, and then the more I think about it, I'm like, it makes sense from a, if you just had a network hub, which was like your main body controller for the car, and it just Ethernet, uh, Ethernet, because you can do power over Ethernet, and I. How much how much wattage can you get over power of Ethernet now? Isn't PoE normally 48 volts? 48 volts, but what's the wattage? PoE plus is 30 watts per port. So that's not enough to run. I was like, wouldn't it be cr- like sick? This is from a <laughs> this is from me from like a uh design standpoint from an engineer and also like maintenance and stuff. You have like a like, power hub that sends data and power to subsystems? Well, data and power, and you can do the power from most things, but 30 watts limits you, because it would be awesome if it was just one ca- one Ethernet cable that went into your door and did everything, and your door was its own thing, right? Because it has a couple yeah. switches. It's got the window that goes up. But I was like, oh, the problem is the window motor takes way more than 30 watts. <laughs> I think those sure. things take like uh, 12 volts at like, like six amps minimal, like it takes a lot of power actually to move that window as quickly as they, as they move them. But it'd be awesome if it was just that one little, I say little, there's a lot, like a lot of stuff in there. That one little ethernet cable did all that. And then from a maintenance standpoint, now you don't have to have all these crazy connectors everywhere. Yeah. You can literally just have a waterproof style or a water resistant style ethernet connector that supplied your power and everything for everything. Yeah. Now, they're probably going to have to pick something else connector-wise to handle more power. Or maybe you have a power supplement cable to handle more of that, that 30 watts. But I think the idea is that, that power and data are just separate. Yeah. It would be nice if it was the same, same though. I'm looking at a comparison right now, and, the, and one of the big differences between CAN and Ethernet is just data rate. Because with CAN, you are limited to a fairly low data rate, 8 to 10 megabits per second mm-hmm. and ethernet can can rip way faster than that 100 yeah. 100 gigabit right so in terms of actually sending data quickly uh for more demanding applications ethernet just absolutely makes sense yeah because i think can bus is also it's you know lvds yeah but the lv part is still 12 volts or something like that <laughs> well ethernet is low voltage too right well no i'm saying is Ethernet, what's Ethernet's peak peak? Uh, to be honest, I don't know, but I, I can't imagine that it's high. Well, it says Ethernet's up to it says Ethernet's up to 12 volts. So maybe it's the same then. Oh, voltages for Ethernet, gigabit Ethernet are plus two, minus two volts. Yeah, I'm seeing plus two and a half to minus two and a half. It's, yeah, it's low voltage. Whereas CAN bus is plus 12. <laughs> so well, you have yeah, way more voltage swing. But way more voltage was, swing, which which is slower. But it was also designed to be those wire the, that twisted pair of canvas would just be in the normal harness, just wrapped in tape with all the normal harness stuff. So it's got it's got to contend with the hundred watts that your you know motor on your door is going up and down and still function right. <laughs> well, yeah, and cars are. I mean, even though it's twisted pair, cars are not the uh, most quiet situations or electrical systems. You no. know. Alternators are terrible. 
<laughs> but the thing is, when you have an electric car now, suddenly your noise floors drop to like almost nothing because you're pulling off that battery. Oh, I haven't thought about that. They're they're probably pretty clean, aren't they? Yeah. They, well, they should well, be. It, it, you have a lot well, of inverters. It, but it depends, it depends on the wiring, I suppose, because you're still sending huge current pulses yeah. to those motors. Yeah, and your invert and your motors are inverter powered. There should be sine waves, so you shouldn't get a lot of harmonics off of it. But you know, it's probably noisy. Uh, but that's nowhere a, that, near that's as noisy probably as a pretty big should, right? Yeah, should probably nowhere near as noisy as a uh, gasoline powered, a rectified alternator. Rectified alternator, because geez, they're terrible. <laughs> I mean, we've gotten by for a long time with that. So yeah, yeah. You know what's interesting? Uh, this is a side tangent before we go on to the next topic is I was uh, my new box truck because well, box truck is actually a topic we're going to talk about later because there's some progress on it but I was driving my box truck around when I was going on my Vegas trip this year and I was noticing that the voltage meter on my dash would move a lot and I've never really seen that like my jeep is like you turn it on and it goes you got 14.2 volts and that's what i'm charging the battery to and it basically never wavers from that the wagon waves a bit but that's because the alternator is old and you spin it faster and it makes more voltage <laughs> so, but this was you'd be just like cruising at one speed and it would be like fluctuating and i'm like is my brand new trucks alternator going out and i i was like i googled around apparently I don't know if more manufacturers do this, but GM in particular varies the voltage off your alternator depending on the what it thinks the charge state of your battery is too. Like it actually has a current shunt ring around the negative terminal, uh, negative battery of, of the uh, to see what the how much current is flowing in and out of the battery, and um, so you can reduce. So we can say, hey alternator don't produce as much voltage because we're just not using it right and so you can save fuel economy but it's also to prolong battery life so you don't overcharge or undercharge your batteries and so you can and it can it basically turn the alternator into a smart charger for your system uh, okay i'm curious who who's in charge of that is does the alternator monitor itself or is there a main Network controller it's the main that's doing computer it. that's under the hood does that. So it's reading hmm. the current going in the battery. It's and it can tell the alternator what to do. Hmm. See, the, I think if you have a software defined vehicle, it sounds more like the alternator could be doing that itself and then just sending its information well, back that's to the main actually computer. Actually, how alternators older ones do work is they they're internal regulated and they have a sense wire that goes to the battery. Yeah. Now this makes it more smarter because now you, it would still need that current shunt basically to figure out how much the battery is actually taking up. And it's like, Hey, if the battery is getting close to being charged, it's not going to be pulling as much current anymore. And you know, and basically you profile out what a lead acid battery charging profile looks like. And, but yeah, you're totally right. I do like actually the smarts not being in it because the alternators get really, really, really hot and semiconductors typically don't like getting really, really hot. They tend to not. Actually, well, semiconductors don't mind getting hot. They just don't last as long. They'll still function. That's true. They don't last as long. <laughs> Man, I've been, I've been doing a lot of um, 
a whole lot of parts aging and parts reliability work at my job. And so it's, uh, it's something I really haven't done a lot of in, uh, in previous jobs. And so it's, it's showing a lot of really, I don't know, interesting things about what changes about a component throughout its life and throughout different environmental stressors. So I, I think we're going to have a podcast coming up sometime in the next few weeks where we talk about that. Oh, cool. Yeah. That'll be fun. News to me. Also, <laughs> Steven. So next topic. Um, I think we exhausted that article um, <laughs> pretty well. So next thing is Steven brewery update. Yeah. So I have been working on season two of the Stephen Craig brewery. I, I, I like I, how you call that now. Call it well, that no, I, I, I call it that because of you. Yeah. Very obviously. Cause <laughs> okay. Quick story. Four years ago, maybe at this point. Yeah. yeah. I think it's four right. years ago. Parker decided to build up his brewery. I got jealous because I had a brewery at the time, but his was going to be super cool. And so I built mine up and we, uh, to kind of in parallel and, and we both called it season one of the brewery. And for years now, we've been talking about what the next evolution of the brewery would be. And, uh, so I've, I've been brewing for the past handful of years on this brewery, nothing wrong with it, but there's always been a handful of things that it was like, yeah, this could be made better. In fact, I, I was talking with Parker a few weeks ago. It was like, I haven't spent money on my brewery in terms of parts for it in a long while. And I wasn't itching to do that. I'm saying that's a good thing. Like it got to a point where it was like done. So that that's actually, we were talking about that. I think we're playing video games once. And I'm like, yeah. I think a project is done where you don't have to buy parts for it anymore. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, and what's great is, so I, I decided to kick off a project to do season two of the brewery. And what's great about it is this entire project isn't requiring me to buy virtually any parts. I'm just changing a lot of quality of life aspects of my brewery. So uh, I have my brewery set up as a three pot system. You have a lauder ton where you keep your hot water. You have a mash ton where you keep the grains and then you have your boil kettle where you actually boil everything. And in the last four years, I've brewed a bunch of batches of beer and I was like, ah, I really wish that my boil kettle and my hot lauder tank were flip-flopped. They switched their operations because I had a 10-gallon hot lauder tank and a 5-gallon boil tank and it makes no sense to have it set up that way. It makes way more sense to have the 5-gallon beer lauder tank and then the 10-gallon beer, but I bought them sequentially and so it, like, it just never got set up that way. At the same time, I have all of the fittings and all of the accoutrement that goes with, with my brewery all threaded with silicon gaskets and little plastic parts and things like that. And it works, but it has a tendency to slightly leak every once in a while. You have to do pretty regular maintenance to make sure that just everything is ready to go. Tight. Yeah, tight. And I've had some situations where on brew day, there's like a oh shit moment and you start a leak and you have to go fix it immediately and you get all upset. And Lord, so Lord, so, come here, put your finger on this while I go get the pipe wrench. Yeah, yeah. And it's boiling water coming out of the <laughs> hole. Yeah. 
And 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 even though it works, it just doesn't. The the quality of life of that kind of system is just not what I wanted. So so I've been wanting for years to just spend the time to switch those two pots and get everything more solid. So I kicked off the brewery season two, where basically I'm patching up holes in my my kettles that I don't need anymore, and I'm soldering all of my fittings to the kettles. Oh, so you decided to solder them? I did. I decided to solder. So it's been for months now. It's been like, do I go with a silver solder situ- uh, solution or do I weld? Because I have a TIG welder. And I've gone through a handful of tests and I spent a whole weekend uh, soldering stainless steel, which, by the way, is not as hard as we've made it out to be or I have made it out to be in the past. I, I, well, you asked for my advice and I said I would never do that ever again. <laughs> silver solder? Yeah. Well, no, but but oh, I was I was talking about TIG welding stainless. Is TIG welding stainless is really not that hard? No, um, no, no. Because Stephen sent me a text a couple weekends ago talking about this. Because because when I built my season one yeah. brewery, I silver soldered, you silver soldered, yeah, all the fittings. And then Stephen asked me like, "How'd that go?" Recently, I was like, "I would never do that again." And I was like, "I would, I will, I next time I do it, I am going to weld it." Okay, I I would like to weld this system. However, there's one major thing that's annoying about stainless steel is the fact that it sugars if you don't back purge your welds with with argon. And what what it means by sugaring is it oxidizes in a crystalline white substance on the back. And basically yeah. the, the backside of the weld is not smooth. Yeah, yeah, it causes it causes a lot of issues and results in a lot of post work. That if I wanted to spend a bunch of money on this project and get like a whole back perch thing or setup, I could possibly do that. But it would require basically you have to you when you're TIG welding, you normally shoot argon on top of your weld. But with stainless steel, you have to have an argon. Uh, environment on both sides of the weld. And since I'm dealing with like 30 thou or 22 gauge stainless steel, I'd have to basically fill my pots entirely with argon to do it. And and in the testing I did with, with soldering, I can easily get a weld to stick and I can draw a bead and I can, I can do, I can perform the action. So I'm not really worried about my capabilities as a welder. I was m- more worried about having to buy a whole system to back purge everything. And I didn't really want to spend a bunch of money on it. So I actually went out and bought a little vial of flux and a few ounces of 8% silver solder, which is not particularly cheap silver solder. But between those two, it was like 12 bucks. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try silver soldering one or two joints and just see how it goes. And I've had fantastic success. It's been going really well and it's not that difficult to do there's a few rules you have to adhere to um mainly keep your joints clean like you normally would Mm -hmm. don't apply a torch directly to the flux or you'll just make this rotten you know goopy mess everywhere and you'll never actually solder anything um and then you know take your time and you don't really need that much heat to actually solder but overall i've been i've been having really fantastic success and i've been documenting it all on our um community discourse i have a whole blog going right now where i'm showing every every little thing i'm doing and it's it's got to the point now where it's like 
things I hadn't thought that I was going to solder before. I was like, well, I can do that too. So I'll just, I'm soldering everything <laughs> at this point because it's working very well. Uh, like I have a whole bunch of threaded fittings that I was just going to use plumber's tape and, and, you know, rethread them on. But if I can just silver solder it and it's a permanent connection that I know is watertight and has good mechanical capability, I've just been doing it. So I've gotten almost one of the two pots done, the harder of the two pots, which is taking the five gallon pot, breaking it all down, and I'm putting my recirculation coil inside of it. And that's been a bit of a challenge because the fittings are a little bit weird on that. And I'm converting a compression style fitting into a solderable fitting, which is not intended for that, but it so far it seems to be working pretty well. And I'm kind of hoping that I can get away with this entire project for like 20 bucks or something like that. It's probably like 20 bucks and 20 hours of work, you know? <laughs> yeah, all the soldering. But yeah, it was, um, I just, it worked for sure. It just, yeah. man, I was just like, man, I'd rather just weld this. So, and, and I would too. I think I, I would rather weld it because I think you can get better results than the silver solder because the silver solder, you just build up material on it. Yeah. And then you kind of will wick in. grind it down. Yeah. And, and the thing is you're filling you're you're inherently filling gaps with a different material. And so it'll have different thermal properties. So over the years, I mean, the whole purpose of brewing is you're getting something really hot and then really cold and then really hot and really like over and over and over. Right. So, Will these silver solder joints last a really long time of a bunch of thermal expansions? I'm not sure. We'll find out. But it's also, if something breaks, you can just re-solder it. So we'll see how it goes. But so far, I'm happy with the results. It uh, seems to be working well. And I've been having a bunch of fun uh, giving it a shot. The, I did run out of flux, though, which sucks. So I can't continue right now. Because uh, I only had half an ounce of flux, this little bottle of it. And uh, so I bought some flux, which is coming in before the weekend. So this weekend, I'll be able to oh, continue perfect. on with it. It's always great when when the supplies show up right before the weekend. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, I ask myself so many times, like, Monday and Tuesday, what do you need for Friday? Yeah, like, what do you need? Start <laughs> thinking about this because it sucks when it's Thursday evening and you figure something out and be like, oh, it'll arrive on Monday. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. You get yeah, to sit yeah. in my, my garage for the next you know week. So so one of the things that I've been thinking about, but I'm going to save for brewery season three, um, is putting bottom drains in my pots. I think it would be really, really awesome to basically drill a hole in a fairly sizable hole in the bottom of a pot and put a valve in there such that if you need to evacuate everything out of that pot. You just open the valve and it just dumps everything. I highly agree. I really, really would like to one day go to that because right now, if I need to get everything out of the pot, I literally have to go drag it somewhere, flip it upside down, hose it out. I think one day I would love to make pots or the all the equipment of my brew rig permanent, where they just they never move. They just sit there and all the actions can be done with valves or pumps or hoses or whatever. Isn't yours somewhat like that? Yeah, mine's like that, but you have to, I don't have bottom drains. And so you get a little water left in the in them. And so you have to wet vacuum out. 
Oh, oh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a, it was a design oversight. But back then, I actually didn't have a steel weld. I didn't have a TIG welder, and uh, right. let alone knew how to weld stainless. But now I actually do stainless, not regularly, but I've done enough of it where I can definitely just stainless on the uh, fittings. Because you were talking about like a system to back purge, and it's like saran wrap over the openings and then like stick a little hose in it that's from your argon tank and purge it like, yeah that's yeah really no, you, you you're right you're right you could do that because i've done that before I, i've done like exhaust fittings and stuff and i've sealed both ends with like foil or saran wrap or whatever and like poked a little hole and put a little tube in it and just like bleed some argon in there for you know a couple minutes close it and then do your weld. It turns out pretty good. I never ha had a sugaring problem. And they make other products like fluxes. But I think you mentioned in our text that those aren't food safe. Yeah, there there was one called Solar Flux, which that's the popular one. Yeah, I watched videos of that, and it was it was pretty in incredible. Uh, you know, you just kind of mix up this goopy paste, paint it on the backside of the intended the weld. weld area and then weld. And as you weld, it crystallizes and makes a, an oxygen barrier basically. And it looked like it was fantastic, but I did a bit of research on people wanting to use it on sanitary situations. And pretty much the consensus was stay far away from this because it, it leaves stuff that's very difficult to clean and is questionable if you have cleaned it. Ah, gotcha. So that's the problem is, is you don't know if you cleaned it or not. Yeah. And you might get like three or four brew days down and you're like, oh, I didn't clean that. <laughs> well, you're a fluxy inside now. Well, you know, one other thing I, I learned with doing this, um, doing my test welding, stainless steel wants way more argon than carbon steel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It wants way more argon. And I found it wants like a sharper point on the, on your electrode. Electroid as well. Yeah, because I was getting garbage welds and I was changing all the settings on my TIG welder and nothing was working. And the the arc, I would I would start up the arc and like normally with carbon steel, you start the arc and it's this nice little cone that goes out and you it's easy to control. But but on stainless steel, it was flopping all over the place. And I'm like, what the hell's going wrong? I couldn't find settings. And I look at my tank and I was like, maybe. And I just gave it, I gave it a good solid turn on the regulators. Like, just more. Let's see if that works. And fired up the arc. It was perfect. And I added like 10 CFM uh, yeah. to it. So a I'm, lot more argon. I, I like, oh, mine that's is what like, I was missing. For stainless, I put at like 35, 40 CFM. That's exactly. I, I normally yeah. go 15 to 20 for carbon steel, and that's fine. But yeah, I did want to close 30 to 35, and stainless was super happy at that point. You know what I've been doing more recently? I've been running my MIG at 30 with C25 gas. What's the result? You get more penetration. It's a hotter weld. And I get less porosity problems. Like, especially if you don't clean the weld. You can't clean the weld that really well. So you're just going to have to, you know, give it the beans. <laughs> the extra gas gives us the beans. <laughs> it also makes I, it really easy to weld outside. <laughs> oh, sure. I, I, ha so. I haven't experienced this myself because I haven't just gone balls to the walls with it but i've heard basically you it is possible to have too much cfm because then you just start actually blowing the arc in the yeah arc yeah i haven't had that problem with pushed the, away i haven't had that problem with um the mig the it, well the, the mig I'm is different because the, the actual I'd rather 
Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I'd rather have more CFM and waste gas than not enough and have to grind the weld and re-weld it. Yeah, that's awful. Yeah, because if you don't have enough gas, you know, you just get oxidization in there or it gets porosity and stuff. It's just nasty. That's the one thing with TIG welding that, that I've found to be a little bit annoying is you just have to build this huge knowledge base of I've done this before and these are the characteristics I know about it. Therefore, I'm going to set my welder up. But if but if you've never done this material before, you kind of have to screw it up to figure out, oh, these are the settings that are good these for are the this material. Or this is the technique I need to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think you and I have both found that nothing works for aluminum. Aluminum is crap. I can't. I haven't figured that out <laughs> at all. It's so hard. I even, I think it was like a year and a half ago at this point. Oh, oh no, it was last winter. So it's a year ago at this point where I, I told Steven, I'm like, Steven, I'm going to sit down and start practicing aluminum TIG. Because because yeah. a couple of years ago, like three years ago, we actually did a live stream of Steven and I welding, TIG welding uh, steel. Uh, mild steel. That was so much fun. And that was a lot of fun. I actually learned a lot and that kicked off a month of me just, I went into my garage for like 30 minutes after work and I welded TIG on steel and I got decent. I'm still like, I'd still rather grab my electric, you know, MIG glue gun instead of the TIG any day of the week. Oh yeah. But I am way more proficient at it. And so like last, last winter, I was like, I am, I was like, Steven, I am going to do the same thing with aluminum. I got two days in. I was just like, fuck this. <laughs> yeah. Screw this. This is awful. Yeah. I, I just couldn't, didn't get any results after two days. I'm like, I can't, I don't know what's wrong. It's black magic. So I think what I'm going to do with that is I'm, I'm for aluminum. I'm probably going to actually go take a welding class on aluminum TIG and just like, I want a class that's just that. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, there's probably a community college or something, or or a yeah. technical school that has, you know, here's how to weld aluminum. It sucks. Yeah. So I need like an intermediate like take class that's like uh, just aluminum. So I I can just go take because there's something wrong with it's not the machine. It's the human. <laughs> so. <laughs> it is always fun though because you go weld something really hard like aluminum. And, and you start pulling your hair out. If you just need like a, a a confidence booster, just go grab some just regular carbon steel, slap it down and run some good beads and remind yourself that you can actually do this. Yeah, you can actually weld. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the worst is when I'm MIG welding and for some reason, like you get that like explosion of metal, like it porosidizes and bubbles up and you're like, and you look at it and like, I did nothing wrong. What happened? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is not me. I cleaned and prepped everything. Yeah. And you're welding this great bead and it does that. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fun. Still haven't fully understood that one. Cause sometimes it just happens and you're like, well, I guess I have to grind you out and reweld you. How did people do it professionally? You know, I must have some contamination or something when that happens. That's what it is. It's just like contamination gets in the weld and then it's, it turns to a gas and then bleh, everywhere. I did one time try to weld a non-weldable aluminum and I know that's really stupid, but 
I didn't know what the aluminum was. So I was like, I'm just going to try this real quick. And it ended really poorly. And there was lots of gases and lots of like burn stuff. I was like, okay, fine. I'll go look up what this aluminum was. And it was some 5,000 series, something or other that just, you look it up online. It's like, don't try to weld this. And it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I see. I see what happens there. I remember trying to, it was, it was weld, weldable aluminum and it was like stock, it was aluminum stock that was for practicing welding on. Okay. And I struck the arc and I couldn't get the puddle the form. And I, I, by the way, I cleaned it, prepped it. I scratched it with my a brand new stainless brush. Yeah. Scratched it all up to get it all clean. And I couldn't get the puddle to form. I sat at it for like a couple minutes, like trying to, and I, the arc just going, because <gasps> like it's, you know, it's the AC. So it's loud as hell. It's couldn't so get it. loud. And I stopped. It looked normal. It looked, looked like just that piece of lunar right there. And I went to move it. The inside was liquidous. The outside was still the material. You like, just you just cooked the inside of it. I, I I made a like I made like a gusher aluminum thing. <laughs> okay. I turned the aluminum bar into a gusher. Wow. That was that was day two. I was like I'm I I done. This is it. It's, this is impossible. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, this is literally aluminum that was for me to practice on welding. I can't do it. So, um, yeah. go take class on it. Hats off to everyone who's actually good at that. Yeah, actually, really like, or no, not even good at it. If you've actually made aluminum, put beads down on it. Hats off. Yeah, I've successfully welded one thing aluminum in my life and it was it was it's my bicycle the uh yeah i was there for that yeah you were there for that and like I, it just worked and it still it just worked together and i don't know what i did but i did it and actually what's funny is that's the only thing that i've welded aluminum that i needed like everything else i've welded aluminum has just that been too. like for yeah. fun or just like trying to weld i so i got super lucky that the 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 that's the one thing that's practical that I still actually use. Yeah. So with that practical welding, thank you for listening to Circuit Break from Macrofab. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. So long for now. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let us know in our discourse hub at circuit-break.macrofab.com go sign up go comment about how better at welding aluminum than you are at than us because we are terrible at it